We will now um, evolve into a kind of general discussion in which, in which after our summarizers, and that really means commentators, uh, uh, make their observations, uh, uh, substantive statements as well as questions and give and take uh, uh, can a part of the order of the day. The, uh, uh, sorry, there's been a videotape running all along. Uh, I don't know whether we'll have some way of having that on a web so that people can get access to it, but I know, but we certainly will be transcribing the audio content, and I'm hoping that the volume that comes out of this, which will include people's revised essays, will also include the uh, uh, as many of the commentators who, who, who want to be part of it. So we'll begin with uh, Richard Brookheiser, who has written on at least three of the protagonists here, I believe, but at book length. Thank you. Can everybody hear? Okay. Uh, it's a great honor to be following so many distinguished scholars and historians, and of course it's very dismaying to be talking about uh, five such brilliant men as we've been doing today and yesterday. And a number of critical things have been said, and I'm going to say some more, but I hope none of us forgets or none of us lapses into the view of history that Sartre satirized as thinking of it as the long, long road that leads to me. And of course, we come at the end, therefore we know it all, therefore we're smarter than all these guys and we should not think that for a moment. Um, America was very fortunate, perhaps even blessed, to have them. But our discussion here is to look at them as leaders, and that's a slightly different question. We have two signers of the Declaration, two signers of the Constitution, uh, we have the first Commander-in-Chief, but we're asked to look at them as leaders, and to me, that implies that we have to consider them in their roles as the first four presidents and the first secretary of the treasury. And if we view them in that way, I think we have two failures, two successes, and one figure who had a mixed record. And what I want to do is um, discuss our five men in ascending order. I, I'll, for each man, I'll just briefly say what I think his qualities were. I'll say what qualities I think he may have lacked, uh, and I'll give a few instances. Um, starting tied for last place, I would put John Adams. Uh, if we read John Adams's writings as a theorist, I think they're almost unreadable and close to worthless. Uh, <laughs> Russell Kirk said that uh, when he bought his 100-year-old uh, edition of Adams's papers, this is in the mid-50s, he found that he was the first person to cut the pages. Uh, when when uh, John's grandson, Charles Francis, had prepared that edition in, in the middle of the 19th century, uh, he found that in several of, of his uh, grandfather's published works, the printer had jumbled the pages. They were out of order, and no one had caught this. You know, no proofreader, apparently no subsequent reader, and so they had marched on until they came to Charles Francis to straighten them out. Uh, I, I think they're, they're confusing. 
they're, they're discursive, they're repetitious. If you read them for the purposes that they were ostensibly written for, you don't get very much out of them. But what you can find in them, which is the great value of John Adams, you find John Adams as a moralist. If he's trying to explain his sense of what a constitution should be or what past constitutions were like, uh, that can bore us. But his moral observations, uh, his apersues about human character and human nature, and particularly its defects and its bad qualities that we must always be aware of. These can be very acute, uh, very sharply put, very psychologically spot on. So I think that's one of John Adams's great strengths. Um, another great strength, his preeminent strength, was as an advocate. Uh, Adams was one of the great advocates for American independence. We forget that he could be an excellent speaker. One of the best speeches he ever gave was July 2nd, 1776, and his final set to with John Dickinson in the Continental Congress. Dickinson presenting for the last time a case for caution uh, for not taking this step of declaring independence. And then finally, Adams rising to state for how many times was it, but summing up the case for independence. Uh, Richard Stockton, who arrived in the middle of that speech, said it was like listening to an angel that had been let down from heaven. And Jefferson uh, uh, called him uh, the, the champion of our liberty on the floor. And typically, John Adams didn't remember what he'd said. And he always insisted that, well, I'd said it a 100 times before, and I don't remember it. I only remember a few sentences. Very dismissive and self-dismissive. But clearly, it was a remarkable performance. I think his success as a diplomat was also his success as an advocate. He was in France and in Europe with other American diplomats. They were part of a team. And they disagreed. They disagreed with each other on what our strategy should be. And they were uh, reflecting confused signals from back home, but they were also reflecting differences in their analysis of the situation, differences in their temperaments. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was the great Francophile. Uh, he thought France was our great ally and they should be managed by, by decency and by good behavior. John Adams was very prickly. And, and he, he always was worried about tying ourselves too closely to France. And we benefited from having both of them there. If we'd only had Franklin or if we'd only had Adams, we wouldn't have gotten as good a deal as we got out of, out of the uh, Peace of Paris and out of the final end game of the revolution. And so for Adams to play that role, as well as he did play it, he had to be an advocate in that situation too. And I think he was a very great one, a very effective one. But this raises the question, when you become president, as he did, how do you as an advocate change your mind if you're forced to change your mind? And the answer, it seems to me, is John Adams did it only with great difficulty and often in ways that were terribly damaging for him. Uh, the two instances would be his treatment of his cabinet uh, and his explanation of his French policy uh, to the nation. Um, John Adams was the first man to have to deal with a predecessor's cabinet, and no one knew how this should be done. It had never happened before. Uh, do they all quit as a matter of course? Uh, should they be dismissed? Uh, what do you do with these men? Uh, what Adams decided to do was to keep them on. 
And unfortunately for him, this was not the superlative first cabinet of George Washington, which is the greatest there's ever been, but it was the last cabinet of George Washington, which was a pretty mediocre lot. Uh, you had Oliver Wolcott, who I think was a competent Treasury Secretary, but a scheming individual. Uh, you had Timothy Pickering, who no one seems to have liked until Barry Wills just wrote a book about him, which is probably the first person who, who has liked him. And you had uh, James McHenry, who was a wonderful guy, one of, seemingly one of the most decent people in the founding generation, but not very competent as Secretary of War. So these are the people that, that Adams has, and these are the people that he keeps on. And his defenders continually make the point of how bad they were, how inadequate they were, how they schemed behind his back, how they undercut him, and so on and so on and so on. But my response to that is welcome to the real world. Politicians always have enemies, and sometimes their enemies are in the guise of their nominal friends or people who are their associates. And good leaders have to figure out how to deal with those enemies. And you either, you either isolate them, or you get rid of them, or you try to win them over. I think James McHenry possibly could have been won over. John Adams had spent some time and effort doing it. Um, he didn't, so that experiment was never made. What Adams did was to wait uh, uh, three years with this unsatisfactory lot. Uh, finally, he has a screaming fit at McHenry, fires him, he demands Pickering's resignation, and he leaves Walcott in place, who was perhaps the most disloyal of the three. So I think it was a very bad way to handle a festering sore he didn't lance it. He didn't treat it in any other way. He waited until it, it broke out in this damaging fashion. Uh, his French policy was also a very difficult matter to handle. And I think you could argue that, that his, uh, his dealings with France were about as, as good as could have been done. Um, he, he created an American Navy. He deployed it effectively. He got the French Directorate which was in a very decadent and bullying phase of the French Revolution, uh, uh, to back off. And when they made us a, a new offer, uh, then he seized that. And he negotiated uh, uh, the convention of Mortfontaine, which um, uh, put our tensions on the back burner, at least for his term. But where he failed, I think, was in explaining this policy to the nation. Now, here again, his defenders will say, that uh, the Federalist Party was um, unshakably anti-French. No amount of explanation on Adams's part could have made them swallow uh, this change of policy. Adams uh, did as well as he could have done. But I, I'm not sure that's true. Obviously, you couldn't persuade Timothy Pickering of such a change, of course. But there might have been other Federalists that you could have brought along if you had taken the efforts or tried to do it. I don't think John Adams did. That's why the policy looked like the, the burning rubber U-turn uh, uh, that it was. And that's why it, it shook his own party and, and so um, had such a drastic effect on the election of 1800. Um, tied with Adams in last place, in my view, is James Madison. And I say this with great trepidation, mindful of who is sponsoring or co-sponsoring this event. <laughs> but I have to say to Princeton, you have a Woodrow Wilson school, and that's because of Woodrow Wilson's presidency. 
but you do not have a James Madison program because of James Madison's presidency. The reason you have a James Madison program is because of other phases of his life. Uh, we have heard uh, about his greatness as a theorist, and um, everybody, I think, endorses that. But from the Annapolis Convention to the ratification of the Bill of Rights, this was a sustained burst of practical theorizing, of theorizing in action, which has never been excelled, probably rarely equal. It was theorizing that was informed by his own talents as a legislator. Uh, the man who knew about factions and how to handle them and you know, how to manage them or balance them was someone who was a brilliant performer in legislative bodies, where he was dealing with a group of peers among whom he would be the first among equals because of his intelligence and his tenacity and his determination. And so it's, it's that basis in his own talents and his own personal experience which makes his writing about factions so sensitive, so nuanced, and his writing about structures of government also so sensitive and nuanced. His other great service uh, to the early republic was as a counselor, as a counselor to Thomas Jefferson. I'm going to talk later about the Hamilton-Washington relationship but we should also always remember the Jefferson-Madison relationship and how important Madison was for his older and, I believe, greater colleague. I think Jefferson had the greater personality, if not the greater mind. I think he had the more forceful uh, intellect and spirit, but he needed to be tethered to earth from time to time. And he used James Madison as his anchor. Uh, we had a discussion uh, earlier of, of his letter to John Adams in 1796 that he never sent. Uh, there was another letter that he wrote in September of 1789 to Madison. This is his famous uh, letter from France. He's about to come home from France. And this is where he says that the earth, uh, uh, the earth must be in usufruct for the living and that the generations of the dead and of the past can't have an effect on the people who are alive now. And then he says, maybe all constitutions, all debts, all laws, maybe they should only run for 19 years, because that's the length of a generation, and then we can start another one, and, and you know everything will be swept aside. And Madison's role here, as so often, is to say what interesting thoughts these are but maybe constitutions and laws and deaths shouldn't last only for 19 years, and to sort of gen gently bring uh, uh, Jefferson back down out of orbit and, and to orient him in a more practical direction. And this was a function that, that Madison played for Jefferson over and over again. But we again we come to the question, how does such a man behave when he becomes chief executive? Uh, one senator described him while he was president as being like a Roman cardinal. And that wasn't a compliment. It wasn't entirely a compliment. Um, I think as an outsider to Madison scholarship, I have to say that I think the issue for it is why was James Madison always changing his mind or did he always change his mind? Professor Banning alluded to this earlier. Uh, and his answer was that no, he didn't change his mind. 
But that, that is certainly the great issue that Madison scholars have addressed and have to continue to, to, to address. I'm going to punt the question of whether Madison changed his mind between 1788 and 1791 on the issue of a national bank. Um, I won't try to argue that Federalist 44, which was one of Madison's essays, not one of Hamilton's essays, and where he says that wherever an end is constitutional, the means are authorized. I won't say that that's a change from that to the opposition to the national bank uh, uh, that he advances in 1791 when Hamilton proposes it. But there is a clear change of mind in Madison's career between 1791 when the National Bank is first ratified, and 1811, when James Madison is president, and its 20-year charter is run out, and it has to be renewed. And by now, James Madison has decided that he wants a National Bank. He needs a National Bank. Among other reasons, his country is going to go to war with England, the greatest power on Earth, and we need some resources to finance this. And a National Bank will be essential for that struggle. But Nathaniel Macon, who was a, a Republican congressional leader, said if great men change their minds on important topics, they ought to give some sense of their reasons for doing so. And he said that rather caustically because he didn't feel that Madison was adequately explaining this shift in his policy over the 20 years of his life. I don't think it's wrong for James Madison to have changed his mind. I think it's good for leaders, if they have new data or face new situations, to change their mind. But I think there was a rigidity that he had. I think it's related to his uh, theoretical abilities, an unwillingness to so um, clearly uh, back away from a position that he had once taken. And because of his reticence, uh, the vote on the recharter of the bank uh, ended up being a tie in the Senate, and his own vice president, George Clinton, uh, casting the tie-breaking vote, voted not to recharter the Bank of the United States, so that a year later we went into war with Great Britain without adequate funds to be able uh, to pay regular forces, uh, thus forcing us to rely to a great degree on our militias, uh, whose service was very erratic. This is the backstory to Madison's heroism in 1814 in the Battle of Bladensburg and the attack on Washington. At the Battle of Bladensburg, we outnumbered the British. We had more troops than they had. But unfortunately, almost all of our troops were militia. And as militia often does, they cut and ran. And the reason they were all so heavily militia was uh, ultimately an effect of these uh, uh, financial, um, uh, the, the failure to recharter a national bank three years earlier. So while I admire James Madison's heroism at that battle, I don't think it's the job of chief executives to provide unnecessary occasions for heroism for the countries that they're leading. Thomas Jefferson is my man in the middle. Obviously, he is the great visionary. And I have to say, I don't think it's been mentioned, he was a great writer. We're talking about five men. Four of them were good writers, or could be good writers. Only one of them is a great writer. I think there are only four great writers in the founding. There were Franklin, Paine, Governor Morris, I would argue, 
uh, and, of course, Jefferson. Uh, here's what Jefferson had on his desk when he was writing the Declaration. These are, these are George Mason's uh, words from the uh, uh, Virginia um, Constitution, state constitution that was being written. All men are created equally free and independent and have certain inherent and natural rights, among which are the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Now, when people uh, read that for the first time, they often think, well, that's where Jefferson got it. You know, he just got it from George Mason. Well, no, he didn't. He got some materials from George Mason. All Jefferson added to that was everything that makes it memorable. That's all he added, but that's what you have to add. There's a difference between good writing and immortal writing. And on July 9, 1776, Jefferson's words, not Mason's, uh, were read to the Americans whose job it was to defend New York from a British armada, which soon appeared and which began five months of defeats for the American army, and hundreds and hundreds of them would be killed in these defeats. And if you're going to ask men to die for a new country, you'd better ask them well. And good words aren't good enough. They have to be great words. And those are the words that Jefferson, time and again, far more than a random distribution, was able to supply. Now, Jefferson did a very difficult thing at the beginning of his presidency. He changed the manners of the presidency. It had been uh, a rather formal institution, as we, as we heard last night, as Washington instituted it. Uh, John Adams tried, in many respects, to keep that up. Um, Jefferson didn't do that. He had ideological reasons for not doing it. He also had personal reasons. Uh, he was not good at certain kinds of formal situations. He was not a good speaker. He didn't like to speak in public. He was a shy man. He was a very reserved man. Um, and he didn't like uh, certain kinds of, of, of stiffness and formality. But what he was, he was charming. So he decided to scale down uh, uh, the, the heirs of the presidency, and as we've heard, he gave these wonderful dinners for everyone at the White House. And it wasn't just a matter of the wine. The wine certainly helped, but he was charming. And, you know, and people responded to that. And even people who disliked him responded to that to a degree. Not everybody. John Quincy Adams did catch him saying at one dinner, uh, that he'd learned Spanish in 10 days with, with a grammar and a copy of Don Quixote. And um, Quincy Adams's comment on that was, Mr. Jefferson likes to tell large stories. Uh, but most people were charmed, and the dinners did work, and they suited Jefferson's strengths, and they helped uh, to reorient the presidency. Another uh, quality of his that served him very well was his pragmatism. Uh, when, when the election of 1800 was deadlocked and before the House of Representatives, uh, Alexander Hamilton, who was trying to persuade Federalists not to support Aaron Burr, but trying to argue that Jefferson is better than Burr, one of the comments he makes is that Mr. Jefferson is as likely to temporize as anyone I know. And Hamilton meant that as a compliment, a very left-handed one, but he was offering this as a reason why Jefferson was good and not to be feared. 
And I think Hamilton was right about that. Jefferson had principles, and he was passionately committed to them, but he was also a practical man. And, you know, a few years later in his term, when his cousin John Randolph of Roanoke is reporting a bill in the House of Representatives uh, uh, that says that uh, the District of Columbia cannot clean uh, the town of Georgetown in the district, cannot dredge the Potomac. The reason? Because it's owned by Maryland and by Virginia, by those two states, and therefore the federal uh, district should not impinge on the authority of the states to clear the river. And when, when, when this was pointed out to Jefferson, he, at one of his White House dinners, he dismissed this as mere metaphysical subtlety. I mean, he was a Virginian. He was the leader of the Virginian school. But he wasn't going to descend to the sort of nitpicking uh, that his cousin did. And I think these are among the reasons why his first term was the great success that it was. Pragmatism, however, has its limits. Uh, we've mentioned the embargo. Here, Jefferson runs up something that's outside the United States. He's not just dealing with people he can charm at his table, with fellow citizens. He's dealing with foreign powers who are engaged in a world war to the death. And so Mr. Jefferson's charm and Mr. Jefferson's theories are much less impressive to two superpowers who are locked in battle. And I think that's the underlying reason why the embargo was such a catastrophe. But I also want to mention one other limit of pragmatism, and I want to play off the big laugh line from last night. Uh, maybe you remember it. It's when uh, Professor Wood was, was thinking of how would the founders react to America now. And he said, oh, well, Hamilton would love it. You know, and every, everybody laughed. And uh, I think it was appreciative. But there was also a sense in the laugh of, oh, crass Hamilton. You know, maybe Hamilton's as crass as we are. That's why he would like America today. And I thought, as we were all laughing, well, how many of us are going to go back to our farm? And how many of us are going to be conveyed there by our black slaves? Because that was also part of Jefferson's world and part of his world that he was unwilling to do anything seriously to change. We must always give him credit for the words in the Declaration that all men are created equal. But we also have to recognize decades of writing and inaction, beginning with the pseudoscientific racism of the notes on Virginia, and going all the way to the intellectually desperate and exhausted hope by the Missouri controversy that while slavery can be weakened by being spread through the whole American West. And it's, we can't expect Jefferson to have done everything, but maybe we could have hoped that he would have done more than nothing or done more than less than nothing. And that is part of the legacy of the Virginia dynasty and even its greatest Republican. Uh, Hamilton is one of my successes, and I think he is the great right-hand man. Uh, he said after Washington died that he was an aegis indispensable to me. And what did Hamilton do under Washington's aegis? Uh, Pauline Meyer has, has talked about his financial achievements. I think two figures highlight them. When Hamilton came in as Treasury Secretary, American debt was trading on the bourses of Antwerp and Amsterdam for one quarter to one third of its value. That's all American IOUs were worth, according to the Money Men of Europe. By the time Hamilton retired, American debt was trading at 110% of its value. 
the money men in Europe were paying a premium to hold it because that's how secure it had been made by Hamilton's policies. And we should not forget how few of the founders understood what he was doing, even George Washington who let him do it. You know, if you read the correspondence of Jefferson and Adams, whenever they talk about economics, it's hair-raising. It's like Ezra Pound and his money cranker. <laughs> and indeed, Pound admired, uh, admired both men and thought that Hamilton was the prime snot in all American history. But uh, it seems to me that there were maybe only six or seven founders who understood the modern world of finance. It was Robert Morris, Governor Morris, it was Tench Cox, uh, there was Hamilton, there was Philip Schuyler. I have no idea why Philip Schuyler seemed to understand this, but he seemed to. And also uh, uh, Albert Gallatin, who comes in in the 1790s. And interestingly, three of them are foreigners, Hamilton, Gallatin, and Robert Morris. So economic knowledge was not common in the early republic. We were on the way to being a banana republic although it would have been called a maple republic. And we would have been the first ones. And we should never forget uh, uh, Hamilton's achievement in saving us from that fate. He also gave to his aegis very good advice on foreign policy. Um, the Bastille falls in July of 1789, four months after Washington is inaugurated. And in October of 89, Hamilton writes a letter to Lafayette where he expresses anxieties about the French Revolution and he cites uh, the refractoriness of your nobles, uh, he cites the ardor, the vehement character of the French people, and he also talks about um, the uh, uh, schemes of your visionary politicians. And this is an epitome for what would indeed go wrong. Uh, Alan Chernow, whose biography on Hamilton is about to come out, uh, makes the point that although Hamilton had never been to France, he understood it better than Jefferson who had lived there for five years. Um, Hamilton's failures, I think, come from trying to do too much uh, from a secondary position. Uh, Winston Churchill tried to run the Gallipoli-Dardanelles campaign as First Lord of the Admiralty, and that's part of the reason it didn't work. Uh, he was not the Prime Minister, and you can't do major things from such a position. Uh, Hamilton tried to uh, advise Adams's administration through his cabinet, through Adams's cabinet, when Hamilton had no position at all. And then he tried to advise it when he was major general of the army, which in American terms is an even worse position to try to have political effect from. And I think many of the failures of the end of his life uh, come from that. Uh, I'll just finish up briefly with Washington. Um, many things could be said of his qualities. I'll just focus on one. And it was touched on last night. In many ways, the most important thing he did, and he did it several times, was to step down. Uh, I think the possibility was very real, not that he could have been a king, but that he could have been elected for life. And who knows what could have emerged from the revolution. I think we underestimate the passions that battle creates and the loyalties that soldiers feel for officers. And time and again, Washington, in amassing tremendous power to himself by his charisma and by his deeds, characteristically turns it back. And I almost think of it as a turn in his rhetoric. It's a characteristic rhetorical technique. We can see it even in 
the one utterance of his on battlefields that I think is probably authentic. Uh, it's hard to know what he said in battles because, you know, years later everyone was trying to remember and people made stuff up and it's very unclear. But there is one phrase of Washington's that he supposedly uh, shouted to his soldiers and it appears enough that I think he probably did say it. And that phrase is, my brave fellows. That's how he addresses his men. That's how he motivates them. And that's not the only way to motivate troops. Frederick the Great, who was a contemporary of Washington's and a greater general, he motivated his troops differently. Uh, he said in one battle, Hunde voltier ewig leben. Do dogs want to live forever? Washington said, my brave fellows, which is a way of saying, my fellows be brave. Now, we've considered how brilliant men maybe cannot be good leaders. I suppose the next question is whether stupid men can be very effective leaders, but that would take us to James Monroe. Thank you. <laughs> Turns out this video is streaming, so other people are Seeing it, hearing it. Okay, you want to go for it? Doesn't matter. I was going to be alphabetical, doesn't matter. Okay. Okay. One historian has said that the other one will be more historical. All right. I'm Stanley Katz. No. <laughs> no, I'm John Murray. John Murray. I thought that uh, in a conference on leadership in the early republic, maybe I should say something about leadership. Uh, so let me just uh, give you my hierarchy of American presidents. I would go Lincoln 1, Washington 2, and FDR 3, challenging Gordon, uh, who goes Washington, Lincoln, and FDR. Uh, let me say that I quite agree that Washington faced a unique problem, being the first president and trying to define what this institution was. But in American history, Lincoln faced another unique and I think even more challenging problem, namely uh, how, how to hold the republic together after 11 states secede. Uh, and uh, uh, I think he met that challenge superbly. Uh, let me add, this uh, came from uh, Jenny Weber, who's a junior member of the history department uh, last night, that there was one man who faced both problems uh, in American history that we don't think of in this context, and that's Jefferson Davis, but he lost. So, uh, so let, let me uh, give some reflections, though, on Washington as a Republican monarch. Uh, and here, uh, this is something I used to do with undergraduates because they don't often put things in this context. Let's divide the early presidents into those who had sons and those who did not have any sons and just look briefly at the consequences. Let's start with those who had no sons. We have Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, and Andrew Jackson. That gets us through 40 of the first 48 years under the federal constitution. Uh, and then we have those who had sons. John Adams, uh, well, his son John Quincy became president of the United States. John Quincy had Charles Francis Adams, uh, who had certainly presidential ambitions, but since he was on the anti-Jacksonian side of the political divide, and that was very much in flux, uh, uh, those ambitions never quite materialized. We have Martin Van Buren. 
Uh, his son, John, was certainly mentioned very prominently as a possible, say, free soil candidate for president of the United States. And then he's followed by William Henry Harrison, and his grandson did become president. So I think there was a dynastic thrust in American politics. Uh, and the American Republic owes a great deal uh, to, simply to the infertility of the founding fathers. <laughs> Well, another, another point emphasized in several of the papers uh, is who set what precedent. Uh, let me just make one simple point here, which is I think Washington took all kinds of initiatives. He certainly was correct in assuming that whatever he did was likely to be imitated by somebody. Uh, but I think that his major initiatives had to be ratified by Jefferson for them to become lasting. Let me just mention a negative and a positive example. The negative example is uh, George Washington's levees, uh, well laid out in Gordon's paper last night. Uh, you know, they were stultifying and formal, and uh, uh, you know, everybody, nobody could turn his back on President George Washington and that sort of thing. Well, Jefferson just stopped it. You know, I don't want to do this. Uh, he even, uh, you know, raised more than a few eyebrows because he sometimes greeted prominent uh, visiting dignitaries uh, in the White House in his slippers. You know, so he was, uh, tried, he was the opposite of being really formal. On the other hand, as Gordon said in passing, I think in answer to a question last night, uh, the two-term limit to uh, being president had to be ratified by Jefferson. And if Washington's advisors had persuaded him, oh, no, look, three terms will be enough. That's it. Just run for a third term. Actually, the president he would have set would have been a lifetime presidency because he died in 1799. But Jefferson... I uh, faced lots of pressure from within the party to run for a third term in 1808, which also suggests that there was a, a fair amount of dissatisfaction with Madison as a possible candidate. Uh, but where I ran into this is uh, in Pennsylvania politics. I won't explain why I was reading up on Pennsylvania politics around 1807, but I was uh, back about 10 years ago. And what I ran into was a very long petition uh, by uh, the Democratic Republicans in the Pennsylvania legislature begging Jefferson to stand for a third term. Uh, they had really in, uh, compelling arguments. It's not safe to turn the presidency over to anybody else in this country until, as I recall, two of the conditions are, one, the national debt is paid off, uh, and two, there is peace in the whole Atlantic world. In other words, they wanted Jefferson to be a lifetime president. You know, I mean, this is the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, so the precedent isn't set until Jefferson ratifies it. Uh, well, all right, jump to another subject. Uh, uh, were these guys, this hasn't really come up here uh, in, in this conference, but uh, were these leaders Christian realists? Uh, and uh, we do know, by the way, that none of them is a fundamentalist. Uh, that's not the right term. None of them is an evangelical. Uh, most of them were deists and rationalists rather than believing and practicing Christians. But still, the realist argument has always been that uh, these people understand that human beings are sinners and that if you're going to build a political system, you better take that into account. Well, I think especially uh, Joanne Freeman's work on honor has persuaded me that the Founding Fathers were guys who believed that original sin afflicted everybody else. Uh, you know, the, I am a man of honor. Uh, I serve the public. Uh, in a totally disinterested way. They all say that at some point or other. Uh, but these people you can't trust. Uh, the big exception to this pattern, though, is uh, the triad of uh, Jefferson, Madison, and Gallatin. 
they really did trust each other. And Henry Adams, I think, is the first to point out just how interesting that is. Uh, and I think it is. It's a fascinating pattern. Well, scattered through these papers are other intriguing suggestions about what in the mind of the founders held the United States together. On the whole, I'd say it's not a sense of a shared past. There are individuals who make that point. You know, well, we've got enough of a past in common. You can find one of the early Federalist Papers by John Jay makes that claim. Uh, I don't even think it was the experience of the Revolutionary War, which I think did more to create George Washington than it did to create a coherent American nation. So the me those memories are essential to that nation eventually. I think what really holds them together is the expectation of a glorious and expansive future. Uh, and uh, where you really find somebody articulating this, it's a, a person I think most of us would put right below the level of these five, namely James Wilson of Pennsylvania. He says that again and again. Uh, and we know what we can become if we don't mess things up. Uh, and this is really going to, and if we're just patient and let this unfold, uh, we will eventually be too strong uh, for anybody else to take us on. Uh, and when you get to Abraham Lincoln, his first major public address, at least that we know of, is to the Springfield Lyceum in 1838, I think, uh, where he says that the American Republic is doomed to be immortal unless it commits suicide. And then he goes on to add that all the armies of Europe, backed by all of the, uh, the treasuries of Europe, uh, of the Atlantic world, I think he says, except our own, could not uh, put one horse uh, on the continent to drink from uh, the river Ohio or get one regiment to move any particular distance. It's only if we mess it up uh, and destroy our own republic, then we will become uh, moral. Uh, it's really quite a statement, uh, and uh, uh, it suggests that, uh, I, I, as I'm going to, I'm going to indicate now, uh, that the Jeffersonians had indeed achieved one of their major objectives. So let me uh, turn to Alan Taylor's uh, defensive expansion. This is a weak republic which sees expansion as a way of surviving uh, and avoiding many of its other internal strains. Well, I think there are varieties of defensive expansion. Uh, some of them verge on offensive expansion, uh, like Hamilton and Washington, uh, who I think we're trying to build an American Republican version of a European, what I call, war-making state. I mean, that's what states did in Europe. They were organized primarily to make war. Uh, and so uh, certainly Hamilton and Washington wanted the United States to have the capability of waging war effectively. What did that mean? It meant a standing army, it meant a professional navy, and it meant adequate revenues and, above all, a system of public finance which can pay for both of those. Uh, Jefferson turns out to favor something really quite strikingly different. Uh, he, kept, uh, he kept the navy, he thought of abolishing it, but then he changed his mind. He kept it, uh, and he uh, turned it loose to bash uh, the Barbary pirates. Uh, which always baffled me. Uh, I, I really, I mean, why did he want to do this? Uh, well, Drew McCoy finally explained it. I think the first time we ever had a conversation, I congratulated you on that. Jefferson knew that the Barbary pirates had closed the Mediterranean to American ships and therefore the export of American agricultural products. Uh, if the Jeffersonian system is going to survive, we need those markets, so why not take this Navy and send it over to the Mediterranean and smash them, uh, which he did. 
Uh, and uh, also, uh, uh, Jefferson sharply reduced the size of the Army, and he was determined to republicanize the officer corps. Uh, and as Theodore Crackle has shown in a fine book, uh, Mr. Jefferson's Army, uh, that's the main purpose of the military academy at West Point, is to guarantee that the officer corps of the uh, Army of the United States will not be Federalist, but will be Jeffersonian. Uh, Jefferson's vision, let me say far more than Washington's or Hamilton's, shaped uh, 19th century America. Uh, we became what Jefferson wanted us be to become. Uh, and above all, I think what uh, the Jeffersonians hoped to do was to achieve hegemony in this hemisphere without creating a traditional military establishment. It would be the ordinary settlers who uh, established this hegemony by uh, creating such a big republic and such a successful republic that in Lincoln's terms, unless it destroys itself, nobody else can tear it down. Uh, the military establishment would come finally only in the 20th century. Uh, I don't know if this term means anything to you, but uh, we talk now in uh, the history of warfare about paradigm armies and navies and things like that. A paradigm army is the one that everybody else uh, has to uh, use to measure itself and its own aspirations. Well, I think you can say quite specifically, the United States creates the Paradigm Navy and Air Force by 1943. I think the Paradigm Army comes somewhere between uh, the Grenada debacle of 1983 and the Gulf War of 1991. It's clear by the time we get to the Persian Gulf, this is the most uh, able and well-trained army in the whole world. Uh, but that wasn't true, I think, uh, uh, as long as the Soviet Union was a really major threat. Um, well, all right, we finally do get, uh, you know, uh, uh, get that kind of accomplishment. We are now the only power in the history of the world to have the paradigm Army, Navy, and Air Force all at the same time, if we can keep them. Uh, and, you know, we, I think the Army is now in trouble in Iraq. Uh, the founders, in short, uh, did believe in an American empire. Uh, and, uh, you know, they use this phrase, uh, certainly Jefferson's empire for liberty, which he used several times in his, in his life, uh, really did mean something very specific for him. Uh, and they did think that expansion could mute other internal tensions. They also recognized that expansion could explode uh, internal tensions as uh, it would by 1861. Uh, raising the question, is Fred Anderson right in his monstrous book on uh, the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, uh, Crucible of War. Uh, you know, he argues that this was the pivotal event, really, of the 18th century and the shaping of North America, rather than uh, the Revolutionary War itself. Well, we've seen some hints about this. Uh, I, I, I think one of the really important uh, uh, contributions is Benjamin Franklin's famous essay on American population, where he pointed, this was published in the early 50s, 1750s, uh, in which he points out that American population doubles at least every 25 years, and that within 100 years, uh, there'll be more English-speaking people on this side of the Atlantic than on the other side of the Atlantic. And he suggests in a kind of winsome way that maybe the uh, capital of the empire will have to move from London to some place in North America. Well, I think uh, uh, that's where Alan Taylor picks up with John Adams's first letter. Uh, and I think Adams must have just read Franklin, but because he gives that much more of a... Uh, uh, a potentially hostile twist. I think the letter is still very much in an Anglo-American hegemonic mode, uh, that that's what will happen, and if eventually they come over here, well, all right, then we run the Anglo-American world from this side of the ocean. But if they try to resist, 
well then, we'll be so strong that we can declare our own independence and survive on our own. Uh, nonetheless, uh, they all understood that within the 18th century, America was weak, uh, and America had to make adjustments for that weakness. That's also why many of them, especially Democratic Republicans, uh, preferred peaceable coercion. That came up this morning. How do we explain the embargo crisis? Let me say that I think much of it is uh, uh, because the Stamp Act crisis had been just an enormous seduction of the American psyche. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, uh, it was the first demonstration of American unity and what Americans could achieve if they were able to unite. Uh, and colonial leaders believed that their non-importation agreements had forced Parliament to repeal the Stamp Act. We know a lot of things they didn't know. Uh, we know, for example, that the British Prime Minister at the time, Lord Rockingham, had actually started writing letters to manufacturers and merchants uh, in which uh, he said protest against all of George Grenville's economic policies and ask Parliament to repeal them. We need economic arguments. Uh, and he's got that movement going when the first uh, non-importation agreements are finally published in London newspapers. Well, then the Americans say, gee, we send over non-importation agreements. Look at what happens. Uh, it's spectacular, fantastic. Uh, and secondly, uh, I think the other reason why uh, the Stamp Act, uh, why economic protests seem to work is that the Stamp Act enforced non-importation. Uh, if you uh, sent your ships out to sea, uh, they might be confiscated if they don't have stamped clearance papers. And consequently, you have American trade is really just shut down for a very long period of time. The Stamp Act uh, really had as much to do with the repeal of the Stamp Act uh, as anything else. But here we have to invoke what I call the logic of the Puritan Jeremiah. You know, you, we've sinned, the Lord is punishing us. Uh, we go through all these uh, rituals of penitence. Uh, and uh, uh, we're still being attacked by Indians or whatever it is. Well, it's because we haven't uh, repented sufficiently. Let's do it more. Uh, so we get other rounds of non-importation. We get uh, uh, the protest of the Townsend uh, Revenue Act, and then we get the protest of the Coercive Act. Those don't work. Uh, I, uh, Britain never yields the way they had yielded in 1766. Uh, well, why? The explanation is we haven't uh, been sufficiently rigorous in enforcing our own policy. Let's be more rigorous this time. And when you get to the embargo crisis, and by the way, that's much more extreme than non-importation. It's non-exportation, uh, which really is extreme. You're cutting off all of, all of our exports. But uh, I think that's why the Jeffersonian administration goes into this frenzy of enforcement, uh, trying to make sure if only we can just plug this one, but holes going out through Canada, if we can plug those, uh, then both Britain and France will have to yield. Let me just one final thought uh, in response to a question this morning. Uh, you know, uh, uh, why did an American empire not pose the threat of corruption of uh, the British Empire? Well, actually, I think it finally did, but that isn't what they were trying to do. Uh, let, the, I think the, the standard interpretation of uh, 18th century ideology is that uh, the British had what Bernard Bailyn calls a system of court politics uh, with an ineffective country opposition, but that this country opposition thought uh, on this side of the ocean was far more powerful and really shaped the American Revolution. Well, that may be true as far as it goes, but if you jump ahead to about 1840, a really strange inversion has taken place. 
uh, in a book by Philip Harling, which began as a Princeton dissertation, that's the form in which I read it, uh, he argues that beginning with the government of the Younger Pitt, uh, 1783 on, that the British do accept uh, the country critique of their constitution, that they implement it, uh, takes them about, uh, they buy up uh, sinecures and pay off the owners because they respect private property. But if you jump ahead to after the Chartist upheaval of the late 1830s, by 1840, virtually nobody in Great Britain thinks the British government is corrupt. By then, we've got Jacksonian America with the politics of the spoils system, and everybody recognizes that the United States is corrupt. Uh, and uh, at, at almost every level, you know, I mean, whether it's local politics, state politics, or, or national politics, uh, somehow this effort to produce a pure republic without corruption, uh, I think in the process of democratizing it under the Jeffersonians, uh, creates a, a, a new form of corruption. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, what they're, all, they're all still thinking in 18th century modes, it's government that corrupts society. The Jeffersonians throw out the bad guy, the Federalists, who are mostly the elite in the Northeast anyway, uh, and then they bring in lesser people. So well, I'm Stan Katz, that's John Murren. And I'm here, I think, because I'm the only historian in the Woodrow Wilson School. And as some of you know, um, I used to have a union card for early American history, but I cashed that in for a card in 20th century history a long time ago. And I'm really not going to try to comment in great detail. We just had two extremely interesting uh, and very historical reflections. I really want to um, address these remarks to Fred, because Fred now has the job of writing an introduction uh, for the volume. And uh, some of the questions I think that he will want to ask are ones that I want to ask, too. Uh, and it's really along, along the lines of why, apart from our devotion to American history and our commitment to an interest in these incredibly interesting people, we should care uh, about all of, all of this. Fred, as you know, normally studies much more contemporary um, presidents. He says he's probably written everything he could write about FDR at this point. So he's moving back in order to find new, uh, new material. But I think one of the things that, uh, with uh, only a few um, exceptions, we haven't addressed is uh, what is leadership. Uh, uh, Richard Brookheiser mentioned it at the beginning of his remarks, but I th would be at a loss to explain uh, from what I've heard today uh, what uh, the speakers on the whole think leadership is. I think we've heard a number of different examples of leadership, what, um, what they consider leadership to be. Um, but I don't think we've had much in the way of analysis, a historical analysis, of, uh, of what it is. If we look at uh, Mr. Brookheiser's grades for the uh, Secretary uh, of the Treasury and the four presidents, um, we can see, I think, to some extent, uh, what he admires and what he doesn't admire, but it really isn't entirely clear to me um, what the criteria are uh, in order to make those judgments. Uh, Aristotle said that Everything that is necessary is necessary upon some hypothesis. Not clear to me what the hypothesis is. Second, and I guess this is a social science point rather than a historical point, um, the focus, of course, by the way the conference has been organized, and certainly we all fell into that, has been very much on individual precedents. And until we got to this last session, there's been re relatively little comparison. There has been some along the way. Uh, a lot of it, I must say, along lines that are very familiar to those of us who study uh, early American history. Uh, and indeed, the whole thing has been a rather internal uh, discussion from that point of view. There's been uh, 
there's been some emphasis on individual decision making and a, a bit on political management. We really haven't had a whole lot of concrete uh, examples of that. And nobody's paper was really organized along those lines. Um, and, and even here, it's not clear to me what people mean, for instance, by politics. Um, Alan Gibson referred at one point to Machiavellian politicians. Um, I think I know what Machiavelli meant by that, but I'm not sure I know what Alan Gibson uh, meant by that in the context of the late uh, 18th century. Uh, we've seen a bit, not a lot really, on relations between these people and their cabinets and their advisors, more for some than for others. But in what ways, what is the relationship of the president to, uh, to his advisors, to his party, to the general electorate, and how do those roles conflict and interact? Something on that, I think, not a lot. But we have, of course, had a great deal on political theory, which always tends to dominate discussions of the uh, revolution, but mainly the Constitution and the early nation. Uh, it's what we know the most about. It's what we spend the most time on. Um, it's intensely interesting, but tends to be, I think, a rather closed uh, debate. So my question to Fred, um, and I hope to the uh, revisers of these papers also, is to think a bit more on uh, what the commonalities um, actually were. How do we uh, move um, across um, these very interesting people? And what would go along with that, and a second point, is it seems to me we need a greater focus on public policy itself. That is, we've been been given examples of what were indeed public policies, but very little focus on how any one of these people, with the exception, I think, of Hamilton, actually conceived of his job in terms of the formulation of uh, public policy. It's quite clear that Hamilton did, and Joanne did a wonderful job, I think, um, in a rather unusual context of explaining uh, why that was true. Um, Pauline Mayer said at one point that, um, correctly, I think, that Hamilton was what she called a, a policy guy. Uh, and I want to know, I don't think Washington was a policy guy. Um, it's not very clear that Madison was a policy guy. Uh, I think probably in a rather peculiar way, Jefferson was a policy guy. And I think actually Adams was. But that would be a fun debate to have. Uh, that is, how did they conceive of uh, presidential decisions um, and the policies that presidents could actually take some initiative for and responsibility for, how did they impact on the larger visions, which is mainly uh, what we have spoken about. We've been given some uh, very good examples. I thought that the exchange, um, particularly Drew McCoy's part of it, on the uh, British attack on Washington in 1814 uh, and the question of how to understand uh, what Madison did in relationship to that event was quite fresh, and I found it extremely stimulating. I think more of those examples would help. More focus, for instance, we had a good exchange that Gordon provoked in a comment uh, on the embargo, uh, and I'll come back to that. But much more of that, we also had Lance uh, and Gordon, I think, both mentioned the war power aspect of the Constitution and how particular presidents dealt with that, uh, particularly in this case uh, Madison. That's worth pursuing. We need a good deal more of that if we're to get a handle, I think, on leadership if, as I think, leadership has to have something to do with public policy. Otherwise, I'm not entirely sure what the point is. Now, thirdly, and this is obvious to everyone, but I want to say it anyway, 
Uh, it's remarkable when we deal with figures, political figures in this period, how incredibly textual uh, we are. Um, if you compare writing on these early presidents with writing on presidents in the 20th century, even the most literate of them, like Woodrow Wilson, uh, there is much less tendency to uh, refer to specific texts. And I think, by the way, there's a real implication in this, which is that how they said what they said really matters. They wrote beautifully, most of them. I think Mr. Brookhouse is right. They don't, they're not equal. But compared to more recent presidents, they certainly stand out. Um, it's a pleasure to read what all of them wrote, even Hamilton when he's writing on certain dull subjects. So we do focus on those. And of course, it's one of the major and most glorious industries in American history is the editing of the papers of the Founding Fathers and of the American presidents more generally. Um, how to use that, <clears throat> how to put it in more contemporary context, I think is a problem and it would be interesting to do it. Occasionally when I hear some glorious statements, apart from the context of what they were actually doing in the real world, I feel a little bit like Patrick Henry when he read James Madison's notes on the Constitution, I smelt a rat. <laughs> well, where to go? Um, the most important thing, I think, and we certainly had some examples of this, but not enough, um, is what Gordon Wood pointed to when he uh, objected to the way that the uh, embargo Jefferson uh, dealt with the embargo and pointed out that there was a context, context being the Enlightenment context, uh, the attempt uh, to avoid war, to develop policies that would avoid war, that I thought it was brilliantly helpful in thinking about the ways in which public policy was, in fact, contested at this particular point in time. Uh, we didn't have, I think, enough of that. Well, there were some wonderful uh, examples. I loved when Jan Lewis quoted John Adams as saying, the people are Clarissa. I wonder how many people in this room have read Clarissa. I haven't read it since 1954, um, but it helped me a lot to think about that. Um, Fred said to me earlier today, we're talking about context, and he mentioned a common friend, a mutual friend of ours at Wesleyan, Richard Buell, who once said to him, Early American historians have to study their subject the same way anthropologists study the Trobrian Islands. Uh, I think there's a lot to be said for that. We need to put it in context. And many of the things that were said here uh, could be put in that context. Empire is a good example of a term, uh, a word that could be put better in context, I think, than we put it into today and some cross-historical uh, comparisons would be extremely helpful uh, for that. Now, finally, I want to come to the point, again, that uh, the Gordon made and I, others have come back to it in the course of the, the two days now. And that is, uh, Gordon said last night um, that, of course, the founders of the Constitution, the early presidents and others who were actors at the time, didn't know how it was going to turn out. Well, we all know that's the case. Uh, historians have 2020 hindsight, but um, a phrase I copied from someone I remember not who is that historians uh, do not predict the future. Historians have a hard enough time predicting the past. <laughs> it's not so easy to do even with our hindsight, um, but it's terribly important to try to do it. And Gordon also said, and this is really the thought I want to conclude with, 
that one of the astonishing things about our culture, about American culture today and throughout our history, I think, is the extent to which we admire the founding figures um, of our tradition, the extent to which we are committed to that tradition, even though we will not agree amongst ourselves about what precisely um, that tradition means. This center is devoted to uh, James Madison and American institutions and ideals, and Robbie George, uh, who is the uh, director of the center, and I don't much agree on what American, we, I think we agree on what American institutions are. We don't always agree on what American ideals are, and that's all well and good. But it's incredibly important to us in our society and I want to conclude by saying it's most crucial to us, and that's what we historians, professional historians, are engaged in doing, is in passing along this knowledge uh, to the young. Um, and this is always one of the most contested areas in American politics. It is, by the way, in almost every country. We have our own way of dealing with it. But think back to what you were taught when you were in school about American history. Now, I'm, uh, I'm one of the older people in this room. Uh, I remember very clearly how I was taught, and I'm going to give you a quick list. Um, George Washington, wooden teeth, chopping down the cherry tree. I was told he did chop down the cherry tree. Boring. John Adams, boring. Jefferson, genius, madman, francophile. <laughs> Madison, father of the Constitution, short, burnt the White House. That's what I thought. Somehow Madison burnt the White House. Hamilton. A bastard killed in a, du in a duel. Um, I've learned uh, more since that time. But if you look at the number of dollars that have been allocated by the federal government for the humanities over the past five or six years, uh, by a considerable measure, there has been more money spent on the teaching of what the statutes call traditional American history than all the other things in the humanities. There's Robert Byrd's Teaching American History program. Uh, there's the We the People effort at the National Endowment for the Humanities, which I gather from the hearings this week is in some trouble. There's Senator Alexander's uh, plan, which hasn't yet gone through, but will surely come back. We care intensely about our disagreements about what the historical uh, tradition is. <clears throat> the concern constantly uh, stressed, every time Bruce Cole gives a speech. He talks about the historical amnesia of today's students. This is, of course, something that's been said about students in every generation since Don Rumsfeld and I went to high school uh, together. Um, we've always apparently been ignorant, and we're not doing any better. Well, that's not true, but it's crucial. The argument is not about what the kids know. The argument is about what we want them to know and what we want them to do with that knowledge which is why it seems to me this is such a wonderful subject for a conference and why I am so grateful to Fred for having gotten us all here to talk about it. Thank you. Uh, I'm not going to define leadership at 5 of 4 on a conference that ended at 3.30. Uh, other than to exercise preemptive leadership and not open the floor up for general discussion. It seems to me that these are such strong and effective presentations that they uh, require a certain amount of thought and germination, and it, the individuals in question can be bearded one by 
one by one. Some of you might have an interest in fresh air at this time today, and, and we're organizing a field trip to, uh, to Rockingham for those who want to come. But uh, the director of the Madison Center gets the last words. Well, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to uh, have the last words because I have to uh, devote those last words to something uh, very important. Uh, but let me begin by uh, thanking all of you for coming. Uh, it's been a wonderful uh, couple of days and made wonderful by the wonderful speakers. And my next uh, uh, obligation, a pleasant one, is to thank all the uh, speakers, the, the major paper givers and the common commentators. Uh, I'm not an historian. Uh, myself, but even I could tell that they were wonderful uh, presentations. Uh, I learned a great deal from them, and I'm sure everyone else uh, did as well. Uh, Stanley Katz, despite his very uh, wonderful teaching skills, has still not been able to instruct me on the true meaning of American uh, ideals, but I'm working on it uh, with, uh, with an open mind, Stanley. So keep, keep at it. Keep at it. I want to thank and I want to ask you to join me uh, in thanking Mrs. Reggie Cohen, who's a member of the staff, a beloved member of the staff of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, and who has been Fred Greenstein's chief lieutenant in putting this together. She put a tremendous amount of work uh, into this and did a wonderful job. I don't know if Reggie's in the room now. I don't see her, but let, let make, she's out there somewhere. I hope let's make her hear us. And then and finally, as he's leaving the room, I'll take a moment to give, on behalf of the James Madison program, to give Rick Brookheiser his grade. Uh, <laughs> uh, I want you to please join me in thanking uh, the incomparable uh, Fred Greenstein. Fred, as this uh, conference makes clear, well, first let me say that it's a blessing. There's no other word that will do a blessing to have Fred as a senior distinguished fellow of the James Madison program. And as this conference makes clear, he performs uh, a very, very uh, important task. Not only is he one of the nation's most distinguished scholars of leadership and of the presidency, but for us, he plays a critical role in reminding us that the study of the great leaders of the past, whether we're talking about Washington or Eisenhower or whoever, Churchill, the study of the great leaders of the past is not merely an antiquarian interest, but that we have very, very important things to learn from them, to learn from their character, to learn from their experience, to learn from their uh, wisdom, and even, of course, to learn from uh, their mistakes. Uh, Fred teaches us a lot about the great figures, great leaders of the past. And for us, he's one of our great leaders. Please join me in thanking Fred Greenstein. Thank you to all of you.